Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's Old Testament scripture from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Theron, for reading our lesson, and what a joy it is to witness uh, this second Sunday of Advent. Uh, the peace candle has been lit, the beauty of music. Uh, if you didn't know that our scripture reader was a retired minister, you do now. We appreciate so much Theron reading us the lesson, and for our children and our chancel choir, Joy Sound, uh, all of you for the beautiful music of Advent and Christmas. Uh, what a joy it is to behold. Those of you who are online with us, we're so grateful that you're here. And I, I think we're going to allow the Baptists to go first in the line uh, afternoon, but I will get you out of here by 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> if you will promise to listen, uh, just buckle your belt and give me just a few minutes. I was lost in the music too, but I still have one job to do and one word to share. The series is called Worth the Wait, another scripture lesson from Isaiah the prophet. We started with Isaiah on the first Sunday of Advent, and during this season we're following the lectionary readings from the Old Testament during these four Sundays of Advent, all of which 
I think, create a sense of expectation, not just for the first coming of Jesus, but for the numerous ways that God seeks to intervene and intercede into our lives. I think it was Eugene Peterson who paraphrased the Bible in what we call the message, who said that the task of a prophet is not to smooth things over, but to make things right. That's the task of Isaiah. And in fact, I remember a seminary professor when I was at Emory years ago who said the task of a prophet is actually twofold. One is to comfort the afflicted, and two is to afflict the comfortable. And Isaiah was really good at the latter. In fact, in the first 39 chapters, Theron, before what you read, Isaiah does just that. He is afflicting the comfortable in Judah. He perceives in his mind and heart the spiritual complacency that has enveloped the nation, the moral erosion that is happening within Judah, and he cannot keep silent. He thunders like the prophet that he is and foretells of their demise, and you see this in the chapter just before what we read, chapter 39, where he specifically warns the leadership, the king of Judah. The days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your ancestors have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Even your sons will be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Let's face it. Isaiah could shuck the corn when he preached. And it happened just like he said. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's troops stormed into the city of Jerusalem and deported the leading citizens, including the clergy, and suddenly all the structure and all the institutions that defined Judah's communal identity were decimated. The temple was burned. The promised land was gone. The nationhood, the leadership, all gone. And to add insult to injury, get this, it was Babylonian policy in that day to obliterate the culture of the people that were defeated. I tell you, it's a miracle that the Jews survived and have survived as a race. Melanie Kantrowitz, former professor of Jewish studies at Queens College in New York, talked about the pathos of exile in her free verse poem, in, which is entitled, Inhospitable Soil. It goes like this. I can't go back. Where I came from was burned off the map. I'm a Jew. Anywhere is someone else's land. I have a feeling that Jews and Palestinians alike know the feeling this morning of exile. It is a way of dwelling in space with the constant awareness that I am not at home anymore. And I think that exile is not just the feeling of absence, it's the feeling that you will never be able to redeem the absence. And so according to this text, the Jewish refugees were haunted by two existential questions. Number one, 
Is God able to help us? And number two, does God even care? Those are queries that you, in your exile, whether it's been because of the death of a loved one or a diagnosis or whatever the transition, you have wondered those questions before. In fact, the word exile from this time became a metaphor for life when our present situation is not what we think it should be or what we would hope it to be. Phyllis Tantella was a 20th century exile of South Africa where we have three schools. You support 430 students who are living in two settlements out of poverty through Christian education. She was a 20th century exile who stood against apartheid and was expelled from her country. In her autobiography, dated 1992, she writes these profound words. Listen to this. Only those who have had to leave home know the unspeakable pain involved. No words can describe it. As much as the situation was ugly in South Africa, and still is today, South Africa was my home. I love it. No place in the world is like that country to me. For all of its ugliness, it's home. The place where my roots have been. And this is what's so painful, she writes. Even now, it is still my hope that I will go back to live there. It is the only place where my soul can find rest and peace. Such is the pathos of an exile. I read recently that in 2022, get this, 100 million people were forcibly displaced from their homeland. That's essentially 1% of the population. Such is the pathos of an exile. But chapter 40, Theron, that you read, is a game changer. From the same voice that speaks of eviction, now comes the hope of restoration. Comfort, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord. I want you to notice that I've italicized the word my. Notice God doesn't say comfort, comfort you people. He says my people. What's that mean? That's covenantal language. To say my people means that God doesn't opt out on you even when you opt out on God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her for she has served her sentence, her penalty is paid. In the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. Notice that word wilderness, please. Typically in the Bible, the wilderness is a symbol of the absence of God. It's a place of desolation and temptation and waste. But in Isaiah 40, the wilderness is a sign of the presence of God. It doesn't detach us from home. It actually becomes the avenue home, which means that God is making a way where there is no way, which is what God does. 
The same trail of tears that would lead the Hebrews to exile is now going to lead them home, says Isaiah. And it happens, just like he said, with the help of Cyrus of Persia, you remember. While Nebuchadnezzar's policy was to deculturate captives, Cyrus's policy was to restore the captive. He was a human rights leader, and he would assist the Hebrew not only in restoration, but, but in rebuilding their economic, their social, and their religious institutions. And of course, Isaiah understands all of this to be ultimately traceable to the fingerprints of God. Thomas Wolfe wrote a book that was required reading for some of you years ago in high school. It's called, You Can't Go Home Again. But I want to tell you this morning, that isn't true. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your sin and rebellion, my sin and rebellion, you can go home again. Because it turns out that home, according to Isaiah, is not just about geography. It's about theology. Home, according to Isaiah, is not primarily a place. It's a person. This is what the Israelites learned in Babylon that inspired the psalmist to write in chapter 90, Thou, O Lord, has been our home in all generations. Our dwelling place. It's interesting to me that in the Hebrew language, the word for dwelling place, it literally means shelter. It means God is my tent, my tabernacle, my refuge, my home. And so when you read that, think of the implications of that. It means that the whole time the Hebrew slaves were wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, they had a place. Even as refugees in Babylon, they had a home because home is not just a residence, it's a relationship. And years later, six centuries later, in the fullness of time, God is going to make God's home among us in a manger. Emmanuel. It means God with us, God within us. And that same child is going to grow up and say to his disciples on a Monday Thursday, on the night before the cross, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be also. Place, it's not brick and mortar, it's soul and spirit. It's the image of unbroken intimate fellowship with Christ so that you can be sure even when you are displaced, you have a place. So the answer to the question is, yes, God is able, and yes, God cares. It is possible to be at home even in exile in a foreign land, wilderness, can even be home. Even when you're outside of your comfort zone where Neil Walsh says life actually begins, on the outside of your comfort zone, even out of your comfort zone, you can be at peace at home. 
Herman Melville said it like this, life is a voyage that is homeward bound. Robert Frost said home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And I love that last verse. Listen to this. Like a shepherd, God will feed his flock. He will gather his lambs in his arms, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead the mother sheep home. The early church would see that verse fulfilled in Jesus, who according to John's gospel referred to himself as the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name. That's our place. That's, that's our security. And that's our home. One word, and I'm finished. One of Sherry and my favorite holiday shows is a show called A Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, has anyone not seen A Charlie Brown Christmas? All right, I've checked. It's 100%. Charles Schultz wrote and aired that show 58 years ago, 1965. You remember the story. Charlie Brown is chosen by Lucy, who is large and in charge, to direct the Christmas play, and it's an absolute disaster. Charlie is trying to get his friends to play the part of the live nativity, but nobody's listening. It's kind of like preaching sometimes. They're paying no attention to him. And nobody seems to know or care what Christmas is really about, except for Linus. Linus has a last name, if you didn't know. It's Van Pelt. He's the brother of Lucy. He's the one who's always got his blanket. He never leaves home without it. Lucy hates that blanket. His friends make fun of it. Even Charlie Brown once suggested that Linus trade in his blanket for a dish towel, to which Linus responds, would you give a starving dog a rubber bone? In fact, once Lucy made a kite out of that blanket and accidentally let go of the string and fortunately, it was saved by the Coast Guard while fly, uh, flying over the Pacific Ocean. But whatever the reason, Linus is insecure. L Linus is me. He's you. He lacks comfort. And so he finds it in his trusty security blanket, which, by the way, if you didn't know, Charles Schultz coined the term security blanket. It was timid, anxious, insecure Linus who would explain to his friends what Christmas was all about. At a pivotal moment in the midst of the chaos, what does he do? He takes center stage and recites the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2 from memory. And when he gets to the part where the angel announces to shepherds the birth of the Savior, he quotes the angel as saying, fear not. And when he says, fear not, he lets go of his blanket. It's no accident. It's in the script. Charles Schultz, who himself was a believer, intentionally has Linus drop his blanket as a message to the world 
that the comfort that we're really looking for isn't found in a blanket or a bottle or a pill or a bank account or a production. It's in the gospel story. It's in a relationship that God makes possible through his presence in a stable. And that's our comfort. That's your security. That's our shelter. That's our salvation. That's, that's our home. And Linus teaches us that God wants to make his home in me and in you. And that, my friends, is worth the wait. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.